Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lionel Land Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Erev Shabbat broadcast. Here on B'nai we welcome you in all the ways that you might be watching, whether that's Facebook Live, the Internet, uh, any one of our mobile apps or uh, television apps. Um, we thank you for making us a part of your Sabbath routine. Right now, it is July 31st, and in just a couple of days' time, this Sunday, uh, there'll be many brethren coming in uh, to join us for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp that's running this Sunday through uh, next Friday. And uh, if you would please join us in prayer uh, uh, for safe travels for everyone who is coming to be a part of that event, all of the youth, junior staff, adult staff, and uh, just pray that the Lord will pour out his spirit upon everyone who's a part of that event in uh, all the ways that he's done uh, for 18 years previous. This will be our 19th event, and uh, the Lord has always moved uh, in the hearts of the youth, and the staff have uh, had a wonderful time as well. So if you would, please join in prayer uh, for that event, safe travels to and from, and we're looking forward to another uh, great year at Camp Yeshua. Uh, also, registration for Tabernacles is still open. There's uh, still plenty of tent sites available for people to uh, come and join us at the Feast of In Gathering this October. If you go to tabernaclesevent.com, you can register your family there. And we pray that you can join us for all the fun and fellowship for the whole family uh, there, once again in Chandler, Oklahoma, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. As always, if you're blessed by this broadcast or any of the other things we do here at Line and Land Ministries, if the Lord would stir in your heart, you can make a donation at llgive.com. There's many ways to donate. You can donate a one-time donation, sign up as one of our monthly donors, or you can give to the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund, uh, which helps people to come to our events uh, who aren't able to pay their registrations, and uh, you can help other brethren to celebrate the feast in that way as well. Many different ways that you can give and support, uh, always lifting us up in prayer as well as we continue to serve the brethren and serve the Lord in his kingdom. We thank you for that. Once again, thank you for joining us, and now let us set apart this Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Chamotzi, chamotzi lechem min haaretz, 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, for her, and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha Nedahar Bachudesh Nohora Techilot Ohosefele Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, la-drotam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael ot-hit le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-retz v'yom ha-shavi, Shabbat v'yinafash. 
altogether. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avanecha v'depardabam b'shivtecha b'yetecha uv'lechtecha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha v'heyu latotavot b'inanecha u'chetavtam ha'mazuzot b'techa uv'sharecha All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
death could not hold you. No death could not hold you. The veil's on before you. Silence the voice of sin and grace. The heavens are Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayet Hanan. I also pleaded with Adonai at that time, saying, Adonai Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in the heaven or on the earth who can do such works and such mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Arden, that good hill country and live known. But Adonai was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And Adonai said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your eyes. For you shall not cross over this Yarden, but charge Yehoshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go across at the head of this people and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beit Peor. Chapter 4 Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, 
so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Adonai the Elohim of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Adonai your Elohim which I command you. Your eyes have seen what Adonai has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, Adonai your Elohim has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to Adonai your Elohim are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Adonai my Elohim commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Adonai our Elohim whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep yourself diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before Adonai your Elohim at Horeb, when Adonai said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then Adonai spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Adonai commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you're going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day Adonai spoke to you at Horev from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Adonai your Elohim has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. But Adonai has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now Adonai was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Yarden and that I would not enter the good land which Adonai your Elohim is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Yarden, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of Adonai your Elohim which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which Adonai your Elohim has commanded you. For Adonai your Elohim is a consuming fire, a jealous Elohim. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of Adonai your Elohim so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the yard and to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Adonai drives you. There you will serve gods, 
the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek out on your Elohim, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Adonai your Elohim and listen to his voice. For Adonai your Elohim is a compassionate Elohim. He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that Elohim created man on earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of Elohim speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as Adonai your Elohim did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Adonai, he is Elohim. There is no other beside him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that Adonai, he is Elohim in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which Adonai your Elohim is giving you for all time. Then Moshe set apart three cities across the yard into the east, that a manslayer might flee there, who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in times past, and by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reuveni, and Ramot in Gilead for the Gadi, and Golan in Bashan for the Manashi. Now this is the law which Moshe set before the sons of Israel, and these are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moshe spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt, across the Yarden, in the valley opposite Beit Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amori, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moshe and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out from Egypt. They took possession of his land, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amori, who were across the Yarden, to the east, from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sion, that is, Hermon, with all the Aravah across the Yarden, to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Aravah, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Chapter 5 Then Moshe summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. Adonai, our Elohim, made a covenant with us at Horev. Adonai did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us with all those of us alive here today. Adonai spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between Adonai and you at that time to declare to you the word of Adonai, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. He said, I am Adonai your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Adonai, your Elohim, am a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Adonai, your Elohim, in vain, for Adonai will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as Adonai your Elohim commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Adonai your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your Elohim brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Adonai your Elohim commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as Adonai your Elohim has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with you on the land which Adonai your Elohim gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words Adonai spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, Adonai, our Elohim has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that Elohim speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of Adonai, our Elohim, any longer than we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living Elohim speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that Adonai our Elohim says. Then speak to us all that Adonai our Elohim speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. Adonai heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Adonai said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as Adonai your Elohim has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which Adonai your Elohim has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Chapter 6 Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which Adonai your Elohim has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandsons might fear Adonai your Elohim, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Yisrael, 
You should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Adonai, the Elohim of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Yisrael, Adonai is our Elohim, Adonai is one. You shall love Adonai your Elohim with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about, when Adonai your Elohim brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied? Then watch yourself that you do not forget Adonai who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only Adonai your Elohim, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Adonai your Elohim in the midst of you is a jealous Elohim. Otherwise, the anger of Adonai your Elohim will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put Adonai your Elohim to the test as you tested him at Massah. You should diligently keep the commandments of Adonai your Elohim and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of Adonai that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which Adonai swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you, as Adonai has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which Adonai Elohim commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Adonai brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, Adonai showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household, and he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So Adonai commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear Adonai Elohim for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before Adonai our Elohim just as he commanded us. Chapter 7 When Adonai your Elohim brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hitti and the Girgashi and the Amori and the Canaani and the Perizi and the Hivi and the Yabusi, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when Adonai your Elohim delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of Adonai will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to Adonai your Elohim. Adonai, your Elohim, had chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Adonai did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because Adonai loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, Adonai brought you out by a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Adonai your Elohim, he is Elohim, the faithful Elohim, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayetchanan. Now this is one of the most popular of all the parashiot because in it is the anthem for this faith, the Shema. The Shema is a foundational statement that captivates us and encapsulates our system of belief. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our Elohim, Adonai is Echad, is one. These words are so integral to our faith that Yeshua used them as the preamble to his answer to the question, what is the greatest of the commandments? Of course, in similar fashion to how the parashiot are named, this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, has become known by the first word uttered, which is Shema. Of course, the Hebrew word Shema is translated into most English versions as hear, but it really means something much more than to simply hear something. This word Shema means more to hearken or to be alert and attentive to. The fascinating and interesting thing about this word, however, is that this occurrence in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is by no means the only time it's used in the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, this same word, Shema, is used a total of 1,168 other times in Scripture. In fact, this same word is used 23 times in the first, chapter, first five chapters of Deuteronomy alone. Some of the most notable uses of this word, Shema, the first three times it's used is in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the very first usage of this word is in a negative context. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Vayishma'u et kol Adonai, which translates to be, they heard the sound or the voice of Adonai, Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim among the trees of the garden. Then it occurs two verses later in verse 10, where it says, he said, I shemati, heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Then we see it once more, seven verses later, in verse 17, where there it says, Ki shamata l'kol ishtecha, which is, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So just from the first three occurrences of this word in Scripture, all from Genesis chapter 3, we can derive several meanings of this word. The first, the surface level understanding, means to simply hear something. But it also carries with it the concept of responding to that sound, not just passively hearing. In other words, hearing the sound of Adonai Elohim in the garden prompted Adam to action. He hid himself. If we understand that the word Shema means more to hearken, 
which means to be alert and to be attentive to, then it helps us to understand exactly what took place in the Garden of Eden. Now, the third time this word is used, it's in reference to listening to the counsel of someone in verse 17 of chapter 3 of Genesis. In this case, Adam was listening to the counsel of his wife. So from these first three uses of the word Shema, we can conclude that it's used to convey the concept of listening to something attentively and alertly, resulting in pursuing a course of action. So now we can begin to understand much better that this word doesn't simply mean to hear something. In fact, there are several other very significant verses where this word occurs. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, as an example, where Adonai tells Avraham, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have shema'at b'koli, obeyed my voice. Then there's Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, where Adonai tells Avraham's son Yitzhak, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, we know that Abraham believed Adonai and that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So now we have an undeniable link between the act of Shema, listening to something attentively and alertly, resulting in pursuing a course of action, and faith being credited as righteousness. That leads us to a full understanding now of the statement that Paul made in his letter to the church at Rome, where he said, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Messiah. Hearing and responding to, not just listening to, or just hearing and acknowledging, but putting action to what has been heard is the key to unlocking how faith works. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our Elohim, Adonai is one. Now, go walk out your faith, now that you have heard, and may your faith be credited as righteousness. Shabbat Shalom. And it's at this point that, and in fact, it actually was in the previous couple of Sabbaths, we had the Hoftors of Rebuke. Uh, there were three teachings before this. This is the beginning of what are called seven specific teachings called the Hoftors of Consolation. The tor por excuse me, the Hoftor portion is no longer linked to specific statements and or specific things that happen in the Torah portion. This Hoftor portion and what we're going to be doing for the next uh, uh, seven Sabbaths is a completely separate teaching topic in the scripture. Now, let me give a little bit more explanation so you understand that. There is this very interesting divide in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are really talking about specific historical events that was in the day uh, that Isaiah lived and his, his uh, word, his edification, his prophetic um, 
task was to deal with those situations. But suddenly, when we come to chapter 40, he immediately shifts way off to future things. We're no longer talking about the events that were taking place in Israel at the time of his life. And it takes on a whole new style. It takes on a whole new language. If I could give you the shortened definition of Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah, which is chapter 66, it would be called the redemption of Zion. That's how the Jews regard this. And Isaiah begins to do a homiletic. He begins to sermonize and to preach uh, for it. And that's what this book now is becoming. It's, it's a preaching. It's, it's a sermonizing. He's telling a story to make a point. Um, interestingly enough... In the New Testament, Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah is the most quoted portions of Old Testament Scripture in all of the New Testament. And in fact, uh, the basis of all New Testament teaching, doctrinal New Testament teaching, comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and on. It, it, this is a sermonized presentation by a prophet and it has made its way all the way into New Testament. And the reason why we know that is if you go back to the New Testament, you see all the key arguments that Paul makes, what Yeshua is talking about, Peter, others, and so forth. Guess what book they're quoting from? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and on uh, for it. So this is going to change dramatically as opposed to other language other books that we've seen in the Hoftor portions or other historical things. It's not history anymore. It's now speaking to the future and speaking to the future of it. The full explanation of this, of this teaching that I'm about to begin uh, with this, uh, this Sabbath, the Hoftor is a consolation. The actual phrase is the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. And later on in this, we'll see that exact phrase. Now, the reason I want you to take note of that is that we have a very specific story shared with us in the days when Yeshua was a, a baby and was being taken to the temple for the very first time. When um, his mother and father, uh, Joseph and Mary, took him there, they met a man, his name is Simeon, it's recorded for us, who, this, this is what the scripture says, he was a devout man that he had believed that God had told him that he would not close his eyes in death before he got to see the Messiah directly. That he would get to see the Messiah before he died. And he was a very devout man. And it says specifically of him that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, we also meet a lady at the same time. Her name is Anna. She had lost her husband early in her life. She had remained at the temple, serving at the temple daily. Other people had come and assisted her and helped her. She was very devoted, very devout for it. And she too saw the Messiah. And both of these people made proclamations over Yeshua when he was a young baby, uh, announcing him as the Messiah in the temple. And it says of her, her testimony, that she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the, the two of these people, they had heard this homiletic teaching that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks. They had heard this and they believed this wonderful message of redemption. Uh, 
that's being spoken of here, the redemption of Zion. They believed in that future redemption that was coming when all of a sudden the Messiah came, was in the flesh, and so forth. They were making proclamations that here is the redemption has finally come to us in the form of this person, uh, that the Messiah had finally come. Um, if I was going to uh, try to find a piece, a piece of Scripture that clearly defines how were the Jewish people expecting the Messiah to come, this is the place we go. This is the place we go. The Haftors of Consolation. The consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, is all about the work of the Messiah, how the, we're going to be forgiven, how we'll be restored, all the good things that are going to happen for us. And this first portion begins that teaching. This first portion is the first one of those seven teachings. It's going to take us from the day after the ninth of Av. And by the way, that was this week on Wednesday. That's now been completed. That was when the bad things happened. Now we're going toward the fall holidays, and it's going to take us and lead us right into the fall holidays which has the prophetic message of the Messiah coming in power and glory. Uh, so this is the beginning of it. So without any further introduction, let's kind of look at what is in here uh, right off the bat and uh, see what it has to say. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, the three, there's three statements here. There's three actions that are called upon. The first is to comfort God's people. It's not we tell the people be comforted. It's that there's an active stance. Somebody is going to come and specifically do the comforting for them. Number two, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Uh, the English here doesn't do justice to what the Hebrew is able to do. The Hebrew language at this particular phrase, let me see if I can give you an, an expanded, amplified English explanation of what really the Hebrew is espousing. In other words, speak tenderly with great kindness to, to this business of comforting is to speak in such a way that it softens the blow. It's like a balm. It's like a healing speaking. Um, and to speak tenderly and with great kindness to Jerusalem. Um, and that's far more than just saying the words, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Um, and, and then the third action, and call out to her or proclaim to her that her warfare is ended. Oh my goodness. Think about that for a moment. The battle is over. You have finally come to the place where the war is over. You are now at peace. Well, we know that the only time that that's going to be is in the kingdom. We know that the world that we live in today is a miserable place. It's going to get worse. It's going to lead into the final years of the Great Tribulation, a time of distress as man has never seen before, the scripture says. And then there will be a completion of the battle, and then all of a sudden the war's over, and the Lord is dwelling with us, and now everlasting righteousness has been established. 
Praise the Lord. Well, here's the language that's beginning the introduction of the redemption of Zion by saying, hey, tell Israel that get ready, something wonderful is going to happen to you. Speak to them kindly and softly. Let them know that you're not an enemy of them, that you're, you're with them, you're for them, you're, you're, you're not opposed to them. And then announce to them, proclaim to them, the war's over. One of the things I have done kind of out of humor, but it's a deep-seated feeling, is a lot of times I'll be at a restaurant and, you know, you, you make your order and they bring the food and, and then the waiter or waitress will always say this, well, is there anything else I can get you? You know, and, and that's part of a good waiter or waitress. They follow up. You've got your drink. You're drinking it. You've got your meal. You're eating it. Is there anything else I can bring you? Like, is there, I want to make sure everything is okay, you know, at your table. And I will always look up at them, and I'll always say, yes, there is something. Could you bring some world peace? Could you help us? to end all of this frustration that we're all in. And of course, the waiter or waitress, they don't have that back in the kitchen. I wish they did. But they don't have it there. And there's a short conversation usually with, um, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that for you. Or, well, let me go check with the, the cooks and see if they've got some. And and there's this moment where we re- I, I recognize... Yes, there are certain things that I need in my world, but, but other people can't provide it. Only God can provide that. Only God can give us world peace. Only God can bring the war to a completion. And that's part of what this verse is all about. It's about bringing that to a conclusion. And that's a very good and very positive thought. And so that's how Isaiah begins to make the shift here. This is so dramatic in the shift of the, from the rest of the book of Isaiah. And the language moves into, uh, let me see if I can recount to you how certain sages have described it. The use of the Hebrew here, from here on out by Isaiah, is some of the most eloquent, the most majestic, the most, uh, you know, where it gives you a picture in your mind, a very pleasant thing that you hear that it's presented in such a fashion that they actually think somebody else wrote this. And there is a theory in some seminaries that the book of Isaiah was actually written by two, two or three different guys. That somehow this guy who wrote this was a totally, a completely different guy because his use of the Hebrew language and the, the examples he used and how he presents himself is dramatically different than they think of Isaiah of the first 39 chapters. Now, personally, I think that's ridiculous. As a professional writer, I can write in different styles. I can write in persuasive. I can write theological. I can write fiction as well as nonfiction. And it's just the skill of the writer uh, to be able to do things. Uh, And I don't think it's a different guy. I think it's the same Isaiah the prophet. But I think you're getting a whole new dimension of his message because he's sermonizing now. He's really speaking to the people and trying to motivate the people and encourage the people and edify them. By the way, most preachers are trying to do the same thing. 
They're trying to find the right words, present it in such a way as to edify the brethren. Well, Isaiah is going to do that and probably set the standard in the scriptures for how to do that. So with that introduction uh, and continuing on, let me read to you what he now has to say. Beginning at verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy that Isaiah is giving that says somebody's going to be coming soon. And they're going to be crying out. And they are literally going to be the person who introduces the Messiah. Well, lo and behold, when you go to the New Testament, the first part of the New Testament, especially John, you're introduced to John the Baptist. Here he is out in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance. And he's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the one that's going to introduce the Messiah to, to his ministry and to Israel. And when they went out and challenged him and asked him, well, who are you? What are you doing out here? Do you think you're the Messiah? Do you think you're Elijah? Would you, you know, who, who do you think you are? His direct answer was, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He literally called back to this scripture, and he said, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the one that's out here away from the city, away from the people in the wilderness, and I'm making the proclamation. And I'm saying, get ready, because the king is getting ready to come. Get ready. Make the path smooth. You know, let's make it so that he can come right in, and do what he's going to do, and that we're ready to receive him. And, and the making the path smooth, lowering the hills, raising the valleys, you know, even if it has to go through the wilderness, make a way so he goes right through the wilderness. All of those things is he's the forerunner. He's the one that's setting the stage, laying the stage. And that's what we find that John the Baptist did, uh, that he was the, the vehicle, the person who brought together the first brethren who were going to become uh, disciples of Yeshua. And in fact, in John chapter 1, we're introduced to five of the 12 disciples. Five of them are introduced right there in John chapter 1 when we're talking about John the Baptist. First of all, we have John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And he's talking about a guy named Andrew who goes off to get his brother named Simon Peter. And so that's two more. And then he also tells the story of a guy named Philip who goes off to get his friend Nathaniel. And this is how the introduction of Messiah comes. These men are introduced to him. They believe they have now met the Messiah. And by the way, that's a very fascinating study as to what exactly did they see that caused them to believe it. And it has to do with the fulfillment of these prophecies somebody was going to have this job to do. So whom did God choose? He chose a priest. John the Baptist was a priest. And that would be appropriate because if the Messiah is going to come as the Lamb of God and to be a sacrifice, you have to, according to the law, you have to have a priest declare that this is the acceptable sacrifice. 
That's one of the key ingredients to identifying the Messiah. And that's the reason why John the Baptist stood up and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's a priest, a Levite priest, who according to the law of Moses just declared there is the Lamb of God. Well, by the way, the Lamb of God is also the redemption and he's also uh, the sacrifice for sin uh, that the Lord requires. So... This verse here is, begins this very, very powerful uh, prophecy by Isaiah telling about how the Messiah is going to come, how redemption is going to come to Zion. And, of course, we see historically, we see the fulfillment of this, and the gospel accounts uh, give us that evidence to go back and examine against this prophecy. So let's go a step further because we're going to get another prophecy now of another group of people. Beginning at verse 6, he says, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Interestingly enough... Um, this is quoted by the Apostle Peter when he says this was the work of the Apostles. When God called the Apostles, this was their test. This was their calling. They're the ones who call out and they make an announcement about the people of the world. Now, there's a very, like I said, the Isaiah at this point is using some incredible word pictures here. So let me see if I can give you the gist of the word picture here. Um, and by the way, I'm going to use a kind of an example of my own that is the same thing. I love, uh, my, Lynn and I, we love to grow a few things in my backyard. We got some pots and some hanging pots um, and we put flowers in them. And around my patio and pergola that I've got in my backyard, very pleasant place I've made for us to go. I have these hanging flowers and pots and you know all around and I've got the ivy growing up on the pergola and so forth. And it's a very pleasant place. It's very nice. Um, and I love having this stuff around. It's very pleasant. In fact anybody that comes out there it, it's part of what makes the whole patio sitting outside under the pergola pleasant because there's pleasant things to see and if you get your nose up close to them you'll hear smell a pleasant fragrance from some of this stuff and it and you see all and we all, we don't put just the same flowers in the pots we get a whole variety of stuff so you see all different kinds of oh and people are always going out oh i've never seen a flower like that well i love that when they say that because i went out to the nursery and picked out stuff that nobody's ever seen i've never seen and so we grow these things but let me tell you something about growing these things they don't last. They don't last. Um, I live in Oklahoma, and in the summers, it gets pretty hot. And I'm here to tell you that if I don't go out there every day and water those things and make sure they're going, the heat and the wind here in Oklahoma will blow past the leaves of those flowers and plants and we literally suck the moisture right out of the plant, and suddenly the leaves go all limp, uh, where they don't have enough moisture to sustain them. And if it goes another day like that, where they go limp and so forth, it'll kill the plant. They're, they'll turn brown, and they're done. 
they are over. And um, so the task of watering them is a daily task to keep that looking nice. And depending on how severe the heat and the sun is, the sun's radiation and the, and the hot wind that comes across it still takes a toll on these plants. And uh, they're not quite as, as lively as they were when I first got them, first got them in the pot. And they suffer the effects of being in the Oklahoma sun and the hot wind, despite my best efforts to water them and keep them healthy and good and so forth. That's what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is, is that the analogy is we can take all of the world, all the people of the world, you can take all the people of the world, they're like grass, and the glory of men, the incredible achievements that men do, they're like flowers. It's not just grass. It comes up and there's a blossom and a bloom and it's beautiful and it casts off a nice fragrance and, and it's, it's something that we adore, something that we like. And there's certain things that men do that are glorious and we like them. And, and we take note of them. However, that same hot wind takes those out just like it takes out the grass. So despite their best efforts, they don't survive in the hot, harsh, scorching wind. And the world has a hot, scorching wind to it. And despite the best efforts of men rising up, there are things that take men down. But And so it's always trying to express that we as mankind and the glory of men is temporary. It's temporary as best. It's like the flowers back on my patio. I'm going to have them for a season. That's it. By the end of the season, they look like a mess. And they have been essentially wiped out. And, and if, oh, by the way, I miss getting out there a day and watering them, and I fail to water them for a couple of days, they'll die even quicker. And they'll suffer the effects uh, of, of that hot wind. The, this is the world we live in. People like the grass. The glory of men is like the flower of the field. And, but the word of the Lord, it says, survives all of it. The hot scorching wind and the heat of the day does not disturb the word of God. The word of God is permanent and lasts beyond the very best of mankind. And you know this, that you probably live long enough, that the world we live in now, with all of the advancements and so forth, is a completely different world than, say, our parents lived in, our grandparents lived in, our great-grandparents lived in. I've always said that if you could get in a time machine and go back and tell your family what the world is like today, you should never do that because they'll probably burn you at the stake thinking you're demon-possessed. They can't process the changes that have taken place, especially for us in the generation that we live. Things are radically different. The flower of the field has come up. It's completely different from all the others. But the stage is now set for it to all be scorched and all to be burned away. But there's something that's going to remain, and that will be the word of the Lord. Now, when the Messiah came, he essentially he came, and he was going to say things that despite nations, despite world empires, despite scholarly men and simple men, none of what they do will be anywhere compared with what he says and what he does. That his word will remain 
and all the others will fall by the wayside. Now, in this portion, let me accelerate just for a moment. I want to show you this verse. Um, let me see here. I think it's... Uh, I don't I don't remember exactly which verse it is that I wanted to go to. I was thinking it was verse 15, but it's not. Um, well, maybe it is. Uh, we'll do that later. I apologize. Let me go ahead and just go through the rest of the portion and we'll see it. Let me give you a quick, so you know what I was looking for. In this portion, one of the things that is said of this redemption this redemption of Zion that's coming, that the entire world will end up talking about this. That when this redemption comes, the whole world will speak of it. Nobody in the world won't know of it. By the way, since Yeshua of Nazareth has come into this world, is it not true that the whole world has heard of him and of the things he said and the things he did? Now, name me other historical figures that have such a reputation. That the whole world is talking about what he did. The things he accomplished, that the entire world recognizes that what he did was significant. And that's an example, the word of our God stands forever. As opposed to the glory of men like grass and flowers and they fade and so forth. That's what everybody else does, but the word of our Lord... The work of the Messiah lasts forever. And to this day, even today, we are speaking of his redemption, stuff that happened uh, two millennia ago. So, the, uh, let's continue on with what, it, what we've got. I just read to you where Peter says this is what they were doing. They were sharing about the word of the Messiah that resulted in all the things of mankind get blown away and don't remain, but the word of Yeshua does remain and does continue on. Now we go to verse 9, and there's a third prophecy. This prophecy says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is a future prophecy, and we know it's future because the language is talking about the second coming of Yeshua of Nazareth. It's talking about when the Messiah is going to come back ruling and reigning, and it's going to be an incredible appearance of the Lord at the end of the ages, and this is when the warfare is going to end. And so he's describing, but he's describing a particular group of people who are instructed to get up on the high mountain and to bear the good news. Now, the, the, the good news, if it's in Greek, it would be called gospel. Who will share the gospel. And lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of the gospel. Lift it up and not be fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, here is your God. This is what you were looking for. Here he is. 
But this is not trying to describe the first coming of the Messiah. That was introduced in the previous prophecies. This is the prophecy of the Messiah when he comes the second time. So who are these people who've been tasked to stand up and do this? By the way, there's other prophecies that speak to who this group is. For example, in the book of Daniel, if you will turn with me there very quickly, Daniel chapter 12. We're talking about the end of the age. We're talking about this time of distress. We're talking about the, when the warfare is going to be ended. And let me read to you here in chapter 12, verse 1 of Daniel. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over you, the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's describing the resurrection. You know, when, when there will be a time of distress, and, and then there's going to be the resurrection and the rapture, because the rapture's with the resurrection. When this sudden rescuing and so forth takes place. And here's what it says, verse 3. And those who have insight, we're talking about a group of people that's in that day, living there at that time. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Now that statement of describing a group of people who have insight and that they're going to be honored as having done an incredible thing. They'll be like stars that shine forever. It describes them again in verse 10 where it says the following. Many will be purged, purified, and revived, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So the prophecy is saying... In the days when the Messiah gets ready to come, there's going to be some people here on the earth, just like there was a John the Baptist with the voice crying out, just like there was the apostles, you know, what shall we call out? You know, it says at the end when the Messiah comes back the, the second time, it says there's going to be some people who have insight that are going to lead many people to understand. And they're going to be the ones announcing Behold, here's your God. Now, nowhere in the New Testament do we have anybody laying claim to the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is a yet future end time prophecy. We have John the Baptist laying claim to verse 3. We have the apostles laying claim to verse 6. Who in the world is it that's supposed to lay claim to verse 9? Because it all has to do with this redemption of Zion. Now the Jews refer to when the Messiah comes and is going to establish his kingdom, they refer to it as the final redemption. That's the title for their whole teaching on the thing. And they believe, are you ready for this? They believe the final redemption will come as a result of another Passover in the future. Now, the Passover that we observe, it's a reminder of what happened when God pulled our ancestors out of Egypt. But they also say there's another future Passover. 
There's a Passover that's supposed to happen that will usher in the kingdom. It'll be the part of the events that brings about the final redemption when the warfare will be ended. By the way, guys, let me just cut to the chase and tell you, there is a future Passover coming up that will be very important to the tribulation saints. When the tribulation unfolds, we will, that first Passover that we enjoy, and the first part of the great tribulation, is the signal for us to escape. That's the timing of when we flee. Just like our ancestors fled, and of course the subject, and I've talked about it many times, is we're talking about the greater exodus. The prophecies of that the historical exodus was just setting the stage for the last generation for a greater exodus. And Jeremiah refers to that in chapter 16 and in chapter 23, where he says, The day is coming. When you will say the word Exodus, and you will not be referring to ancient Egypt. You'll be referring to when God's people come up from all the nations of the world. So there's a future element to it. These verses in Isaiah 40 and verse 9 is part of that. It's part of the greater Exodus. It's part of the final redemption the Jews are looking for. And it's part of, let me go ahead and get to you that. It's part of the prophecies of the 144,000. This specific group that have been prophesied that will minister greatly in those days. Those that have insight, that will understand it, and they will lead many to understand. Now, nobody needs any new prophecies on the end time. Nobody needs to stand up and say, hey, I got a new word for you about the word about... We've got plenty of prophecies about the end time. The real task for us is to understand the ones we already have. And that's what they will come and minister to us to do, so that we can understand what are the prophecies to do. That is what Isaiah is talking about in this portion. He's trying to introduce that there's a great plan of God's redemption. He's going to be heralded and introduced to you. There will be some apostles that will minister out his teaching. But there's a day come when it will be a glorious return. He'll be coming back and even greater things will be taking place. And that's what he does. Now, let me cut to the final portion here before we leave. Um, in Isaiah 40, because this portion goes all the way to verse 26. Um, I want to take you to verse 21. I want to read the last paragraph to you of this portion. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely had their stock taken root in the earth. Um... But he merely blows on them and they wither. Remember the scorching wind and all of a sudden they're gone. And the storm carries them away like stubble. They dry up and the wind blows and they're gone. You don't even find the evidence of the where they ever were before. To whom then will you liken me? That I should be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. And the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, 
Not one of them is missing. Now, you and I can follow the counsel of Isaiah, and all you have to do is tonight, while you're enjoying your Sabbath, walk outside, and if it's not too cloudy, look up and look at the stars. And just ask yourself the question, who put those there? And oh, by the way, God says, he knows the name of every one of them. He's given a name to every one of them. <clears throat> we can't even get there. We, we, can't, we, we have no capacity to go out there and reach and put that thing in there. Nor do we even know what their names are. But God does. God put them there and he knows the names of every one of them. If he were sitting here and having a conversation, he would point up and he would say, well, that star over there, that's what that is. And he'd give the name to it. And then he would tell you all the other things associated with it and so forth. And it would go on and on and on, almost like infinity. That's who our God is. And that's how powerful his redemption is. And that's the reason why that the best efforts of men are likened unto grass and flowers. But that the scorching wind takes us out. And we don't survive. But God is more powerful than scorching wind. In fact, he is the scorching wind. And he can do whatever he chooses to do because he's the creator and he put all that stuff in there. And therefore, you should begin to understand that this redemption that he's bringing, it's that powerful. Now, because he's using the example of creation, but his redemption is just as powerful as his creation is. That, to me, my friends, encourages me greatly that the arm of the Lord is not short and that when he promises me that my sins will be forgiven, and he promises me that he'll extend blessings to me, then I absolutely look forward to it. I love the verse where it says, his recompense is before him, judgments fall, but his reward is with him. As soon as he deals with his enemies, there's no delay for us for the reward that he's bringing with him. Um, and that's encouraging to me. I hope that's encouraging to you as well. We will continue on in the next uh, several Shabbats going through the Hoftors of Consolation. This is the first one of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the prophet Isaiah. Thank you, Lord, for his eloquent word, his word pictures to explain the redemption to us. And, of course, we thank you for your fulfillment of the word and the Redeemer coming to us to provide to us forgiveness and give us a life. We thank you for that. And I ask as we go through this year, the Hoftors of Consolation, that somehow this will reach out and touch the hearts of the brethren. Encourage them as much as you've encouraged me, Lord, uh, to build them up in their most holy faith and to put within their lips the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise for you. We ask all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hold your finger at verse 14, where our Brit Hadashah teaching will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your teaching and your instruction. Father, as we uh, read the words, Lord, of the commandments that you gave to the children of Israel once again this week, Father, I pray that you continue to penetrate our hearts and our minds, Lord, and our spirits uh, with those words. May we live by them. May we be encouraged by them. And may we walk uprightly before you walking in the commandments that you have called us uh, to follow. We thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings. It's in your son, Yeshua. We pray these things. Amen. Our Torah portion this week, Va'etchanan, which is the Moses pleading before the Lord and saying, I pleaded before the Lord to enter into the promised land, yet he was not able to go into the promised land. He was, uh, because of his disbelief, because of him striking the rock, Moses was not allowed to join with that generation that entered in to the promised land. And it begins the, uh, the oration once again of speaking to the sons of Israel before crossing into the promised land and everything that Moses is trying to teach and share with that generation before he passes away, reading from the book of the law that is Deuteronomy and preparing them to enter into the promised land. So there's a lot of information repeated for us in Deuteronomy that we've already covered in the Torah. And in this portion, we go back over the uh, reading of the Ten Commandments, the time in which the children of Israel came before Mount Sinai, that mountain that they could not approach, could not touch, and then the voice of God booming from the mountain speaks the Ten Commandments and those words. And those uh, that entire passage is repeated for us in our Torah portion here in Deuteronomy that is a repetition of what was given before in Exodus chapter 20. So there's a lot of things to, to sort of look and to draw out from repeating those words. Again, we, when we go to the New Testament, we're going to try to draw out some of those same principles. And so if we're just talking about the Ten Commandments, we could we already kind of covered some of the, those words in that instruction as it was given uh, back when we were doing the Brit Hadashah portion for Exodus chapter 20, the portion of Yithro. What we have, though, is this repetition that Moses is speaking, always trying to hammer home some of these principles. And so hopefully we can draw some of those things out here in the New Testament for this portion. I've turned us to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a passage here that speaks specifically about the children of Israel coming to the mountain, what they heard and, 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 and the fear that they had in hearing those words. And also there's a little passage here uh, that I want to relate also that uh, relates to the namesake of the Torah portion, Va'etanan, and I pleaded, and Moses pleading for his chance to go into the promised land. So beginning at verse 14 of Hebrews 12, it says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, there's maybe this is kind of an unfair comparison, and there's enough difference here that maybe I shouldn't draw this comparison, but I'm going to anyways. That Esau, after his sin, he pleaded to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. There was no place for repentance, and with great tears he did not receive the blessing. In relation to our Torah portion, Moses... His sin, 
is the fact that when he struck the rock, that he might have ple- he pleaded with the Lord, but because of his unbelief, because of his sin, he did not get to go into the promised land. In the same way, we need to learn from the mistake. We can learn from the mistake of Esau. Yeah, don't sell your birthright for a single morsel of food. Not a good plan. But Moses also follow the Lord. Believe in him. Do what he has said, What exactly what he said. When he says, take the rod, go speak to the rock, don't go to the rock and hit the rock with the rod. That's not, that's obviously doing something that you're not supposed to do. So we are to learn these mistakes. And so whenever we hear this Moses pleading before the Lord, the blessing of Moses, of course, is that the Lord still took him up on a mountain and allowed him to see the promised land, to see the, 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 what the land looked like and that it was exceedingly great. And even God told him and showed, told him, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Even though the promised land was to the west, he told him to look everywhere because God also showed Moses spiritually what the greater promised land, what the kingdom would be when we're talking about all the land that was promised to Abraham and to his sons, that greater future kingdom that extends all the way from the Nile River to the River Euphrates and, and, and north and south and much larger than the specific place of the land of Canaan or what modern-day Israel is today. And so Moses still got to see those things, but even with his prayer, his repentance, he did not receive those things. Everyone falls short. Be careful, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And even Moses, even the great man that he was, fell short of being able to go into the promised land and follow truly what the Lord has said. Let's continue on. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that be burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet that the vo- and the voice of words so that those that heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of, and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is spelling all of these things out of bringing, being brought to the mountain. That directly relates to the story of our Torah portion here. And that when we heard these things and, and, and when we were when God was giving his covenant at that point in time, these thunder and this sound and this, this, this booming thing caused fear inside of us that we didn't we, we feared for what God was saying and what was happening. And I've loved to teach all the times about the children of Israel that originally God, those words that were coming from the mountain that God, I don't believe, was done speaking. The same voice that created the world was speaking to the children of Israel and was writing his commandments upon their hearts. And he was making covenant with them in their hearts by that voice. Look, if God's voice has the power to create the world, to say earth and there's earth and say, you know, light and here's light. And he is there to say, you know, this is what shall be created, created and that's what is created. That's the power of God's voice to do those things. Then if the people heard God's voice. From that mountain, what kind of change or creation could be put inside of them when they were coming into covenant with God? That same voice that created the world 
can fundamental, fundamentally, scientifically, physiologically change the hearts of the people, the ears that they heard, and that, that there's a change that is taking place in the people that heard that voice. That's why the children of Israel are a peculiar people. Who else has ever heard the voice of God and lived? Well, the children of Israel did. Now, there was that generation, that most of that generation over the age of 20, they didn't survive into the promised land, but they were there. They heard the voice and they lived. And then anybody under 20 might have heard that. And it's like, I, I guarantee if you were 15 years old at the time uh, and you heard the voice of God, that might have impacted your life. You might remember that, uh, that instance. You're not going to forget that one anytime soon. And so if some 15-year-old at the base of Mount Sinai uh, then, you know, 40 years later, you know, at 55, he's getting to go into the promised land with his own family. And he has the testimony of hearing the voice of God and living. Who else has ever done that? What a peculiar people the children of Israel are, in fact. I think it's possible that when God spoke that there was a, something written into the DNA of the children of Israel. Scientifically, maybe we could catch up to this at some point in time. But anyone who has ever been a descendant of those people. That something in that voice impacted their life in their heart and that it circumcised into their hearts the word of God. Now, the children of Israel at the time, they rejected the covenant. That generation rejected the covenant. And so it, through sins and rebellions and all kinds of other things, the sin of the golden calf, that the people wanted something physical to see rather than just this spiritual covenant inside their heart. So they made a golden calf, and that didn't go very well for them. But then God then commands Moses to build a tabernacle or a tent for him to dwell amongst the camp. Now, this might be a controversial opinion, but I actually believe that the tabernacle was actually the plan B of God wanting to dwell inside the hearts of his people. Not inside a tent and a tabernacle within the camp, but originally in the hearts of the people. But the children of Israel, they were too young, too spiritually mature. They, they, they did not know what was truly happening. And that at the end of the age, God is going to spiritually put himself in the hearts of his people. And that's why we, in the, in the course of the New Covenant, I've always loved the fact that what we teach our children to come into faith, in their Christian faith, of believing in Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, we say, pray to the Lord and invite him into your heart. Invite God to dwell in your heart. You know, plan A, what God originally intended for the children of Israel. Invite them into your heart. And that now is the tabernacle by which he dwells. Not one of fabric and textiles and gold and silver in the wilderness. And not one of marble and stone and gold and, and bricks and mortar in Jerusalem. But in here is where God dwells. We're starting to get back to the way God originally intended it to be. For him to dwell inside of us. So, I mean, that's a theory that the tabernacle being plan B, you know, and we know that throughout history, God has a plan and a purpose and its will, his will is executed through all of this. But let's not get lost on the fact that God desires to dwell in our hearts amongst the people, within the people. That's where God desires to dwell. His character is clear that that's what he wants to do with his creation. And so then here, the writer of Hebrews is spelling this out that it's like, you know, we, we come to Mount Sinai, the city of the living God, and we're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem. He's taking it a, a spiritual uh, turn here, that the fact that we as believers in God, that yes, we, we, we didn't have to go to a mountain and hear this trembling and, this, and the fearful thunderings coming from the mountain like the children of Israel did. 
But, however, the way I believe it or interpret it is that that still impacted us to get to the where we are now as believers in Yeshua the Messiah, in whether you're in the first century or in modern times now, that that belief and that following of God now gives us a spiritual inheritance that is spiritually greater than the physical inheritance that the children of Israel received. But we have both, the physical and the spiritual, to relate to, to understand that, yeah, when we go to the kingdom, it will be like the children of Israel receiving the promised land. It'll, there's a similarity there, and we, being physical creatures, sometimes need that physical example, that contour, that, uh, that, that ensign, the, the, the sign to follow, to, uh, so that we might understand it. It's very hard to learn spiritual principles, but God gives us the physical to teach us about the spiritual principles. And so that's, you know, he gives us both the spiritual and the physical so that we might learn truly what it is to be followers of God. So here's a passage right here talking about, again, the mountain, the thunderings and, and, and all of those things that the children of Israel experienced at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, in our Torah portion also includes Deuteronomy chapter 6, which, of course, is the uh, the giving of the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and the greatest commandment as well. So with that being in our Torah portion, let us turn now to Mark chapter 12, once again to the passage in which God, uh, the Messiah was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Now all of the synoptic gospels uh, do cover this, uh, cover this story in Matthew 22, also in Luke chapter 10. But I want to go to Mark chapter 12, where I kind of like the way that this is um, given here by in this particular gospel. And I like the conclusion that's drawn uh, here out of this one as opposed to the others. So beginning at verse 28, it says this, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, this is the you know Messiah speaking to the disciples and amongst the people, perceiving that he had answered them well, they asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Or a lot of translations say the greatest commandment. Yeshua answers them and says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbors as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What an amazing testimony of the scribe saying those words. Now, it's not that the scribe was sitting there and grading the Messiah, but what he is, is he, he was speaking out of the abundance of his heart, knowing, yes, truly, I mean, you're right. I mean, those are the greatest things. You can forget about the animal sacrifices. You can forget about the altar service and, and, and those things. These are the great things. These, these are greater than all of those. They're more to love one's neighbor is more than all of the burnt offerings, because even the, the Messiah said earlier than this, <coughs> excuse me, he said, that, gee, if you're at the altar and you are uh, offering an altar, but then you remember that you have ought with your neighbor or a neighbor has ought with you, leave your offering at the altar and go deal with the thing that's going on with your neighbor. 
Those things need to be taken care of first. Those are first and foremost. I almost like the translation here that says that this is the first of the commandments, not necessarily the greatest of the commandments. Because there's an order of operations here as to the following of the commandments of God. You can sit here and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the, the festivals of God, the appointed times. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to bring all these offerings. But what's the point of doing any of those things if you don't first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's the point? <laughs> you can do all those things and it's like, oh, yeah, after I do that, then I'll get around to uh, loving God. <laughs> that's completely out of order in the same way that it's like all of these things about like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to have all these different interactions with my neighbor, but it's like, I'll, I'll get around to loving my neighbor eventually. No, you don't do anything with your neighbor for your neighbor within your community, unless you first love your neighbor. And then it's very impossible. Then the whole thing is the first is loving God, then loving your neighbor. You know, there's an order of operations here. So one, yes, we're talking about the greatest commandment. <laughs> but my New King James translation right here says these are the first of the commandments. I, I kind of like that, actually, because you need to do these things rightly and in order. And even the scribe said of these things. Now, listen to what the Messiah said of the scribe. When Yeshua saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. So there were certain questions and people were, were, were saying and, and asking questions amongst this thing. But when this exchange happened between this scribe and said, you're, oh my gosh, you're right. Nothing is greater than to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our understanding, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. You are, you're right. And Yeshua said, yeah, and you've answered wisely. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Hmm. Everybody at that point took a step back and they're like, wow, God, uh, what a profound statement to say. When all of us are looking for the kingdom of God, the establishment of God's kingdom on this earth, what, wait, how do we get to the kingdom? Well, the, the Lord said there's a guy that right here that said, it's so true. Love him with all heart, soul, heart, mind, uh, mind, strength, understanding, soul. And then love your neighbors as yourself. It's greater than all the burnt offerings. And that's how we get to the kingdom. That's the understanding we need to be not far off from the kingdom. It makes you stop and think, how do we bring about the kingdom here on earth? How does that kingdom come? How, does we, how, how, do we, how do we get to that place, that point, that goal, the goal that we have our, our sights set on to get to the kingdom of God? It starts with this understanding, the first and the greatest of the commandments. It's almost like the keeping of the commandments is that step in that stage toward getting to the kingdom. This is one of those arguments that you might say, uh, are we going to keep the commandments of Torah? Is it going to be valid in the kingdom? Uh, yeah, because the steps to get to the kingdom starts with keeping the first of the commandments. That's how we get to the kingdom. That's how we establish the kingdom. And that's how in the hearts of the people receiving the law written onto your heart, walking uprightly before the Lord, obeying him, is how you become a citizen of the kingdom. That's the direction we're going. Even if the kingdom, if, even if the physical kingdom has not been established yet here on earth, the spiritual kingdom resides in our hearts, in the ways that we live, in the ways that we walk, by following the commandments of God. That's how the kingdom comes. So, that's why. We're, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road here. 
This is where the, the, the first, this is the beginning of obedience. This is the beginning of understanding how we must live, how we must walk. As believers in God, it starts here with the first of the commandments. It's not just even that this is the first of the commandments that you follow, but even the order by which the commandment is given is the order by which you follow the commandments. Uh, you, you may have heard me teach this before, but when, you, when it says, love Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and then with all of your might or strength, or with all of your mind and strength, or all of your strength and mind, every time in the Gospels it actually says that those last two a little bit different, that do you think that there's an order by which those things are spoken? That when we love God, we should love God first with our heart, then with our soul, then our mind and our strength can come later. I actually believe that that is the order of things. And that takes it to, again, that spiritual level. We might think that, you know, physically we have to love the Lord. And I've given this example before that it's like a husband who loves his wife. How, husbands, how do you show love to your wife? Uh, can you show love to your wife with all of your strength? Yes, you can. All the acts of service that you can do around the house, from taking out the trash to mowing the lawn to to, to working and laboring to bring about you know the the means to support the household, and you can love your wife with all of your strength and with all of your body and with all of your might by doing things that way. Is that the best way that you can love your wife? It's necessary, yes, but it's not the best way. And it's not the way that you should do so first. Because even if a guy does all of those things, that's not going to stop a wife from coming to him at some point and just saying, man, I'm just not feeling loved. And he's like, what do you mean you don't feel loved? I'm doing all these things. I mowed the yard. I took the trash out. Yeah, but I'm just not, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. Well, that's because a woman doesn't want a guy to come and say, I love you with all of my might. Or you can't say, I love you with all of my mind. I know how much, I, I know that it's wonderful that we're married together. And I love you with all of my mind. And it's great that we're together. And I know this. It's logically, it, may, it logically makes sense that we should be married and we should raise our kids. And these things are good, right? Is that what she wants to hear? No. She wants to hear that love come from the innermost being. She wants to hear that love come from within, within one's heart coming from the soul and say, honey, I love you with all of my heart. Those other things come later. Yeah, the logic makes sense. The taking out the trash, yeah, you better, get, you better do that to take care of your family. But what she really wants to hear is, I love you with all of my heart. From my innermost being, from deep down into my soul, you are my soulmate. And that's the love that I have for you. That's what a wife really wants to hear. That's also what God wants to hear from his people that we should love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, from deep within, is how we have to show love to the Lord. The order of operations is important. And so then, we, 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 if we are following these things in order, things take a spiritual turn. This is where we have to, where the connection between us and God and believing in Him has to be an emotional connection. Not just a physical one, not just going through the motions, and it's just like, it doesn't work that way. Because there's been plenty of people that come in, they go to church, they put money in the offering plate, they go, they do, they do everything that they're supposed to do, going through the motions as a good Christian, yet the Lord doesn't know them. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. They aren't spiritually fed or encouraged by, by walking those things out because they don't have the emotional, heartfelt, soul tie to God, their God who they are following and worshiping and the actions 
are coming first before the love for the Lord, which comes first, which is way the order it's supposed to be. That's why, again, the change has to happen within. Then the physical actions follow. You can't just go through the motions and, and expect to be counted up and to be drawn up with the children of Israel. Because all the people that died and fell in the wilderness still went through the Dead Sea, still was delivered by, from Egypt. And they went through the motions and they went to Mount Sinai and they did and they were a part of all those things. But did the emotional connection be made in their hearts to the God that saved them? No, they rejected the land. They rejected the gift, the inheritance. They rejected the covenant that God was trying to give to them because their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts weren't ready. Their hearts were hard. Couldn't, God couldn't chip away at the hardness of their heart to, to try and create a tabernacle to dwell in there. It's a little too rough. God didn't want to dwell in a cave of rock. He wants to dwell in a heart of flesh that's, that's, that's moldable, that's shapeable, that, that, that's soft in their emotion, in their action, in, in, in everything that they do. And they say, that's what it is to have a soft heart. One that God's spirit can reside in and one where God can dwell and operate in. Not just not a heart of stone, not a spiritually immature heart that still goes following after things of the world and things of idols and things like that. That is where God wants to dwell. And that is what God was trying to do in the hearts of the children of Israel. But we, in modern times, have them as an example as to what not to do. So now let us learn, and let us learn from these words here, on what we are to do. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Soften your heart to receive him. And if you do so, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful place. That, 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 the goal of Scripture, that where, where we're trying to get to. Anyone who's ever talking about the return of the Lord and, and wanting to, we're trying to get to the kingdom. We, we, the tribulation, we, we don't want to do the tribulation. If the, if the Lord needs the world to go through tribulation, well, then that, that's the Lord's call and that's the Lord's judgment on that. But ultimately, our goal isn't the tribulation. Our goal is the kingdom. So let's get to the kingdom. Let's make the kingdom happen. And in fact, there are things we can do and things we can believe and ways that we can walk today that brings us closer to the kingdom without anything else having to happen in the world. And that's the hearts of the people being turned to him, softened and following to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves is the path to bring about the kingdom. What a blessing that is. Look, God, <clears throat> here's the other thing about all, all this passage of Scripture, talking about when, when God brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai to do all of this. And this is reiterated for us in our Torah portion for this week as well. That God chose us. God chose the children of Israel as the people that he was going to make this example of. We didn't choose him. We can sit here and we can say, now, now, he chose us first. Now, it is our responsibility to respond in kind for him to, to for, for us to respond in kind to, to the Lord, to receive that covenant, to receive that relationship. But first and foremost, God chose the children of Israel. Some people might stand back and say, man, children of Israel, they really screwed up things back there. Why in the world would God choose them? Well, because they actually made a fantastic example for us to follow, for us to learn by, so that then we can see the example of, the, of Israel being a kingdom of priests, so that then their testimony can extend to all peoples, all nations, tribes, and tongues, and that we have a kingdom of priests to see the physical example on what the path is, to reach God and reach his kingdom. That's what Israel stands for. 
to be a kingdom of priests as an example, mediators between God and man, God and the nations. And so that we have the path and the means and the physical example to learn from how to get to the kingdom. That's why God chose them as a peculiar people, a peculiar treasure. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. One of my favorite parables that, uh, that Yeshua ever spoke. He told this story here in uh, reading verse 1 in Matthew chapter 22. It says this, Yeshua answered and spoke them again in parables and saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his, ser his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but, there are, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how is it that you have come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is, a, this is an incredible, uh, incredible parallel for every single person who ever hears it. Who are you in this parable? Who are you? What role do you play in this parable? Are you the king who, who created the feast? No, of course not. That's God. God is creating the kingdom. He is the king. He's the one who's establishing the marriage. The marriage of his son. Are you God's son? No, no, that's Yeshua. <laughs> that's Yeshua that he's planning, this marriage of a son. This is what the kingdom is. It's going to be the marriage of the son of God. And then let's get all the invited guests. Let's bring them all in. Now, are you the person that was invited, but you came up with some lousy excuse as to not come? Oh, I got too many things to do. I got a I got a farm here. I got I got all these great possessions over here. I'm not going to come to that feast that you call the kingdom because I got too many other great things here. <laughs> Are you one of the truly evil people of the kingdom that killed the messengers that brought the invitation? You're invited to a party and you say, "I don't want to go so much that I'm even going I'm going to treat you spitefully and I'm going to kill you." Those are the people that fall into judgment. Those are the people that are falling into judgment right now, here and now, in this world that we live in, in modern times. If you ever see a group of people that are falling into judgment, I'm not, I'm not the judge. I'm not going to say this for sure. But, you know, those might be the people fulfilling that part of the parable. The ones who truly have rejected God and his invitation to the kingdom. Now, there's a great many of us, actually, what we are is we're the ones that are we're on the highways and byways and perhaps weren't originally invited to the feast. But when the king says, my feast will be filled, and the servants go out and they gather anyone, good, bad, they go to the highways, the byways, the leper colonies, the, wherever they can go to find so that that feast might be filled with guests. 
That's the way God's going to save the rest of the world. All kinds of people are going to get caught up into the invitation, into the kingdom, because ones that were originally invited rejected it, but the ones that have, that, that, that the Lord has been kind to, show mercy to, wherever they might be in life, they get to come into the feast. And then even after that, and the king goes to then see, and then even if somebody was invited and they're on their way in, yet they rejected the wedding garment, they didn't get dressed up for appropriate for the occasion, they didn't prepare themselves physically adorned, ready for the, the wedding. And the king's like, no. No, you're still not ready for the wedding. You're still not ready for the kingdom. And bind them up, cast them away. Where do you fall into that parable? Which one are you? Let me give you the, the short answer. Let me give you the, the, the cheat sheet. What you, The person you should be in that parable is the servants of the king. The one who is extending the invitation to all who are invited. That's the role of Israel. That's the role of the kingdom of priests, the servants of the king that go and issue the invitation. That's the role that we should be playing as believers, as followers of God. Because, and, and, and you know what? We're going to run into all kinds of people in the course of that invitation. We might be a messenger that is sent to one place and those people just reject it. You, you, you can sit there and you can, you can cry out, follow the Lord, believe in him, follow me. Let's go to the kingdom. And they just reject it. They come up with every other excuse to not come. Or you might end up going to a place and where you're treated scornfully and hatefully. And then you're hated for going in with that message. And they just do, and, and that rejection is even greater. For the, Bless the servants that have to go into that place and be treated such a way when you're simply trying to issue the invitation to the kingdom. And then others, sometimes that you're the ones at the end where it's all like, you know what? The, the one, I'm, I'm, I called certain prophets and certain servants to go speak to this groups of people, and I still don't have a full feast. So you know what? All these other servants, you go there, go there, go there, go there. Go everywhere and find the people, wherever they might be, whether it's in the ash heap or whether it's in another nation or whether they look differently, smell differently, whether they're, they're leprous and have been rejected by society otherwise, and go find those people. Be the servants of the king that bring them in. Because God chose them. Be the servant that God chose to serve him. And or if, if you're not that, then be the people that accepts the invitation that it was chosen by the king, chosen by God for you to be in the kingdom. That is the, the, that is the call that we need to fulfill and understand. Look, this is a choice by God. If God is issuing that invitation, if God chooses you, then follow him. Choose him. Don't be the ones that reject the invitation. Israel was a chosen people. God, 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 God chose them. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, that's the people that were in the ash heap, not doing anything, out in the byways in total darkness and brought into the wondrous, marvelous light of a wedding feast. That's how he chooses us. Verse 10, for once we're not, we were not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. For all the people 
that are struggling in life, going through life, dealing with every single one of these things. To, 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 to be not a people, to not have a nation, to not have an identity. And that's what so many people are in the world. They have no identity. But then when a messenger of the king, when a servant of the king, a servant of the God of Israel goes and says, you are welcome into this family. I will give you a garment that you will wear. I will give you an identity and a heritage for you to live by. And I will give you a family. You were once not a people, but when you walk in and you believe in God and you follow his commandments and his words when you come into this kingdom, you are now a people with a nation, with a heritage, with an inheritance, with a blessing, with a king, with a father, with, 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 with anything that you ever didn't have before. You didn't have mercy. You didn't have grace. You didn't have a family. And now you have all of it because you've accepted the invitation, because you have been chosen by the Lord to, do, to, 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 to receive this inheritance, to receive this blessing. John chapter 15 says this at verse 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. Simple as that. I can't say that any more simply. This is the call to the servants that he has chosen to go about and bring the kingdom to the people or bring the people to the kingdom, whichever way you, you want to look at that. And he says, I chose you and that you should go and bear good fruit. Go live by my spirit. Bear the fruits of the spirit. That's how you bring about these things on earth. And very simply spells out these things I command you that you love one another. It's as simple as that. The commandment of love. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. If you do those things, you can be the servant of God. You can be the servant of the kingdom. And you can be in the role in that parable that is the one that goes and is the servant of the king and not the one who has opportunity to reject the king and his invitation. That is the role. That's what we must do. And that's how we must fulfill our destiny as the people of God, as the chosen people, as the sons of the living God, as the children of Israel, not by heritage, but by adoption, and that it don't matter what who your mommy and daddy were, it don't matter what the color of your skin is, you are welcome into this family by the adoption of sons with equal rights and shares to the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Accept the invitation, because God chose you. Reciprocate. RSVP to that wedding and to that kingdom. And I look forward that we can all be there in the kingdom. And what a great and glorious and marvelous day that will be. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching, this instruction. Father, we thank you for choosing us from among all peoples. For looking upon us, Lord, and even in our sin and even in our, our, our mistakes that we've made as a people, Father, that still you show kindness and mercy. To a thousand generations. Lord, there hasn't even been a thousand generations recorded yet. And so, Father, your mercies abound to us, even in this place and even to this these modern times. Father, may we accept the call. May we serve your name and your kingdom. May we be the messengers, Lord, that bring that message of salvation to the people who need to hear it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We accept this invitation, Lord, and we... Uh, pray, Lord, that you would just lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit and all be bearers of good fruit and all the things that we do and showing love to those, even those that hate us, Lord, 
so that we might fulfill this role in this call. We bless you and we thank you on this day. We thank you for the Sabbath. I pray a special rest upon everyone this uh, Sabbath for this week. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLGive.com. Thank you and Shalom.